I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The question is marriage. The answer in this podcast is Claire Carlisle's sparkling book on George Eliot's double life. George Eliot, born Mary Ann Evans, was the towering novelist of Middlemarch, Silas Marner, and more. She put a man's name on her author's page. She built very nearly a religion on her foundational ideas about marriage. Yet, she never married the man that she loved and for 24 years called her husband. Claire Carlyle, it was an astonishing feat that George Eliot pulled off in Victorian England. It's another considerable feat of yours to fill out for modern readers the question that she and George Lewis were exploring together. Can you frame that question for us? Well, the marriage question is the title of my book. And (laughs) I guess it's not just one question, but many questions that are lived over the course of a long relationship. And I talk about how George Eliot's marriage questions grow and change over the course of her experience. But I guess a really fundamental question is, what is a marriage and what's its role in making our lives meaningful? My impression, short form, is that this Marian Evans, known as George Eliot, was running a sort of lab school for marriages, keeping a journal on her own unlicensed 24-year marriage by her own rules with George Lewis. And at the same time, she's writing these this continuous series of piercing, popular, classic novels driven by the many marriage questions, as you say, whether to marry, whom to marry, how to steer a marriage toward life and bliss, and sometimes whether to stay married. How modern is she? She feels very modern to me all of a sudden. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I thought she was the ideal person and the ideal writer for exploring this marriage question because, um, well, partly because she wasn't legally married. And so even though she described her relationship with George Lewis as a marriage, by that she meant not just a legal document or, you know, a piece of paper or a church ritual, but what she called an experience So she described the double life that she shared with Lewis as an experience of marriage. And I think that makes her really modern because perhaps nowadays we're more likely to think of our relationships, not so much as public contracts, but as personal experiences that we share with other people. Do we know why Marianne Evans didn't want to be published under her own name? Why she chose a man's name too? Yeah, well, this was really bound up with her marriage question because she started writing fiction couple of years into her relationship with Lewis. It was really scandalous. She was seen as a fallen woman, so there's no way she could have published anything under her own name. It would have just been trashed by the press and uh, sort of condemned before it was even read. She sort of ruined her name, really, by doing this. Um, So she had to be anonymous and choose a pseudonym And like other women writing at this time, she did decide to choose a male pseudonym. And she also, not just a male pseudonym, but she also adopts a kind of masculine literary voice as she writes. So it feels like you're reading something perhaps by a man. Um, People certainly believed that George Eliot was a man. And I think that's partly because she was writing such serious intellectual and philosophical work, not just novels. Mm. So I think because she wanted to be taken seriously as a deep thinker, it was beneficial to use a masculine name because men were seen as, of course, better educated, more knowledgeable, 
they had that kind of intellectual authority to do serious philosophical work and women simply didn't. I mean, women couldn't even go to university at the time that she was writing these books. But then everything comes together in the marriage, such as it was, the adoption of George Eliot as the name, and this first novel, Adam Bede. Suddenly there it is, love, marriage, and work blossoming together. Yeah. To be too simple about it, could she be taught in Florida classrooms, in the public schools? Should she be taught to kids today? Should she be required? Uh, I think she could be taught. I think her little book, Silas Marner, would be perhaps one to start with because it's one of the shortest books that she wrote and that's really beautiful kind of parable about marriage and also motherhood as as I read it. What I'm learning from you overall, Claire Carlyle, is that her unmarried marriage to George Lewis, their double life or as you say dual solitude, was unconventional for sure. Many people thought it was scandalous, but it was not the least irreverent about marriage itself. Here is how she summed up her doctrine, so to speak, in what sounds like her adapted Christian framework. She writes, the very possibility of a constantly growing blessedness in marriage is to me the very basis of good in our mortal life. That's a big Mm. statement. (laughs) Yeah, well, as you said at the beginning, marriage almost becomes a a religion or at least a spirituality for George Eliot because she was someone like many of her generation and others since who questioned the conventional, traditional Christian beliefs that she was brought up with. And um, I think those beliefs just became untenable for her personally. Not that she wasn't interested in Christianity and she found a lot of meaning in it, but she didn't believe in it in yeah, the more sort of traditional way. And so she was looking for some alternative source of sanctity, of sacredness. And She talked about marriage very much in those terms as a sacred bond, which is ironic because she was accused of transgressing the sanctity of marriage by, you know, living with a married man. But she turned that around and and wanted to say that human love, whether or not it's officially documented, is sacred in itself. And again, I think this is something that many of us today, um, not everyone, but many people today would really relate to. Marriage in George Eliot is the place where we can get cured of famous George Eliot phrase, moral stupidity. It's the place where we (laughs) learn finally that, in her words, there is an equivalent center of self in another person. Yeah, so I think part of what she's saying there is that human beings are, in some ways, we're naturally self-centered. We're immersed in our own worlds and we're thinking about our own interests. But we're also naturally dependent on other people. Obviously, when we're born, we're dependent on our parents. And then as we make friendships and relationships and so on through life, we become interdependent on perhaps many different people. And so I think for Elliot, the task of life really is to bring together our natural self-centeredness with the natural human condition of dependence. And she saw marriage where you really get very close to another person's centre of self, to another subjectivity, that's an opportunity to expand your own sort of self-centeredness to include another person. And perhaps through doing that, through learning to live a shared life, a double life, 
that circle can then expand even more, perhaps to include other people as well. But it's certainly, yeah, through marriage that that sort of circle of self can initially expand. Right. It is the gateway to to growth and change, mm, maybe. It is for her, yeah. You say you discovered in George Eliot the tenacity of a great philosopher as well as the delicacy of a great artist. And mm. all the while she's an experimentalist too in her own life with her own happiness very much at risk. Question, what does philosophy have to do with it? <laughs> as opposed to, you know, marriage counseling or biology or finances? Well, I guess, you know, philosophy encompasses some of the deepest questions about the meaning of our lives, about what it is to be a human being, about our freedom, our selfhood, desire. I suppose what's really important about philosophy is that these are shared questions. They're not just personal to me. It's not just because of my own experience that these questions arise. Um, I think philosophical questions are are shared and, and even universal. And so my suggestion in the book, and I think this was also George Eliot's view too, is that marriage is um, a site for many of these philosophical questions to arise. Questions about, yeah, freedom and, and happiness and what it is to be a person how much power we have as an individual, how much we're dependent on others, how much responsibility we might have for our own happiness. Um, these are all philosophical questions and they're not settled by scientific investigation of, you know, as you say, biology or even more kind of social sciences, that there's something about our own experience and our own wondering about ourselves and our lives and their meaning. That's kind of a unique perspective to bring but they're not at all abstract questions. They're very pragmatic things. Over and over, she will credit her artistic growth, her best-selling and critical successes to her double life. Mm. There's an iron chain here that links love to marriage and marriage to work and then work to art. You can't mm. have one without the other, mm. as the song used to say. It keeps coming back to love, marriage, art. Yeah, and I suppose those are the things that for her made her life meaningful. That was the meaning and the purpose of her life. And as you say, they were interconnected. And that's part of what I said about dependence, you know, that we might imagine some great artist like George Eliot being alone and just creating her work, you know, just, just from her own powers. But that image of the creative genius or, or even the, the feminist idea of being a purely independent woman when you look at the way people actually live, those ideals get complicated by the personal relationships that make up our lives, whether they're marriages or, or some other kind of relationship. With all her books, there are too many characters and too little time here, but pick a couple of couples maybe from Middlemarch. How is it we know, for example, from the outset that the lovely, lyrically idealistic, almost goofy Dorothea Brooke <laughs> and the parched old pedant Kasabin are not going to make it? Mm. How is it also that Dorothea doesn't know? Yeah, well, in a way, she's blinded by her own ambitions. I mean, she, as you say, she's very idealistic and she wants to live a great life, an unusual life, an extraordinary life, and she wants to learn. She's got this great thirst for knowledge and for wisdom, um, which actually makes her a very philosophical person because philosophy is, is the love of wisdom. And so, in a way, Dorothea is a kind of budding philosopher who wants to pursue wisdom and find a sort of purposeful 
meaningful life. And then she sees this kind of local guy, Edward Casaubon, who in a fairly kind of limited, she lives in quite a small world, Dorothea, she doesn't have much life experience. And he's writing a book called The Key to All Mythologies, which sounds extremely intelligent. You know, he knows Greek, he knows Latin. So within her small world, he's the most educated man she knows. And she has this idea that if she becomes his wife, then she'll learn everything. She'll live this grand, meaningful life. And there's obviously a real irony there because the very idea that a woman can only can only find a meaningful life through marriage is, I think, an idea that George Eliot's kind of playing with here. Um, so we see Dorothea looking dreamily at Kazorbon and having all these great hopes, but we also see Kazorbon through the eyes of her sister, Dorothea's sister, Celia, who is a very down-to-earth person yeah. who just really tells it as it is, sees things as they are, and she knows that this man is not going to make her sister happy. Um, so George Eliot shows us, through having these two sisters, and she shows us the two different views of Kazorbon, Dorothea's view and Celia's view. So we're prepared for the marriage to go disastrously wrong. But Dorothea can only learn the hard way, that is, through her own experience of actually being in the relationship. Take an opposite case. We also know somehow from the outset that Mary Garth and lazy Fred Vincy <laughs> were made for lifetimes of contentment together. Yeah, so they were childhood friends. Farm kids, in a sense. Yes, they grew up together. Mary's sort of view of Fred is almost like the opposite of Dorothea's very idealistic view of Casaubon, because Mary knows Fred really well. She knows his failings, and um, she sees him very clearly and she loves him anyway. And so I think George Eliot is telling us that that kind of genuine knowledge is really the basis for a solid, loving relationship rather than the, the sort of dreamy, idealising, hopeful knowledge that Dorothea is exemplifying. Claire Carlyle, tell us about this Marion Evans, George Eliot from Warwickshire, a bookish, notably homely girl growing up at a farm <laughs> that her father managed. The key fact about her, she felt in her 20s, was that, her words, I am alone in the world. I have no one who enters into my pleasures and my griefs, no one with whom I can pour out my soul, no one with the same yearnings, the same temptations, the same delights as myself. The first marriage question in young Marion's life had to be whether she could marry. Would she be sought out for marriage? That's right, and um, she didn't have much confidence in herself because she wasn't, you know, conventionally beautiful. Henry James couldn't not mention it. She was just sort of frightfully homely. Yeah, that's what he said. People used to remark on her great ugliness. They said she looked like a horse and so on. But they also would talk about how they would almost fall in love with her after a while. So the first impression was not good, but then after spending a few minutes or an hour or so in her company, they'd feel in love with her. And actually lots of women... Younger women were really, really drawn to her and found her eyes very beautiful. They found her voice beautiful. So she seems to have had a real charisma and, and she was sort of fascinating, even if she wasn't beautiful. And George Lewis said about her, to know her is to love her. So he obviously thought she was very lovable. But yeah, it took her a long time to, to find the right man. Um, she fell in love with a few other men who, who rejected her. And I think that made her feel really bad. And certainly in the 19th century, to still be single as a woman in your 30s, that was like you were really, it was like a hopeless situation, you know, to be like a spinster at age 32 or 33, as Marion Evans was. At 20, she's a woman in a man's world. 
in London, brimming with ambition and literary philosophical talent. She's read everything. Early on, she's an editor of the fashionable Westminster Review. She's got access to the great minds of London. She's in love with one of them, Herbert Spencer, Mm. and makes the critical discovery there that her writing feeds on the life of her romantic heart. She says, those who have known me best, she tells this to Spencer, have always said that if I loved anyone thoroughly, my life must turn upon that feeling. And with Spencer, she says, I could gather the courage to work and make life valuable. If only I had you near me. She's in a sort of desperation, Claire Carlyle. You write that she perceived the beauty of the human heart that dares to open and reveal itself. Yeah, I think I think that letter is really beautiful in its vulnerability. And as you say, it also just shows the way, it's a real insight into her psychology, the way she sees love and work as so codependent. You know, that yeah. She needs this love in order to to work. And, you know, Herbert Spencer was a really intellectual man. He himself was a great philosopher, had a great mind. And so it's like she needed an intellectual companion, someone who could meet her on her intellectual level and who could converse with her. So that was, it's the life of the mind that she was always drawn to. And actually there was one man that who did want to marry her during that time before she met Spencer he was a picture framer and she was really excited because he asked her to marry him or asked her to have a courtship and she said oh yes and then the next day she realized it was a mistake and that's because he wasn't her intellectual equal and she felt that her sort of mind wouldn't wouldn't be satisfied so she broke it off so even though on the one hand she was really kind of lonely and in some ways sort of desperate for affection and love she also knew how important the intellectual life was to her and she tended to go for men who were yeah very intelligent very interested in culture and literature and philosophy and so on and then age 30 she meets she said the most amusing little fellow george lewis who made her feel lovable. She lays it all out, and in particular, this order of things from love to life to work. She says, I am very happy, happy in the highest blessing life can give us, the perfect love and sympathy of a nature that stimulates my own to healthful activity. I feel, too, that all the terrible pain I have gone through in past years has probably been a preparation for some special work I may do before I die. Again, it's... Love, life, work. And that was before she started to write fiction, but I think she saw that Lewis was going to help her to fulfil those creative, artistic, philosophical ambitions that she'd been nurturing for years. They make a decision to become a couple but not married. With all this reverence, they can't do it. What is her state of mind around this question just before they, in effect, elope? Well, we don't know much about it because she didn't, tell anyone um, what was going on. So she'd met George Lewis, they'd become a couple, but only in private. So we don't even know exactly when they got together. Um, We just know that she was spending time with him and obviously she liked him, but we don't know when it became something more than a friendship. And then the next thing we hear, she's writing to her friends, her close friends, telling them that she's just setting off for Germany and that's it. And then, it, you know, people find out that she's gone off to Germany with Lewis. Um, but it's still not clear, like, what's their status as a couple? You know, are they a couple? Are they just travelling together? So she was very secretive about it. So we don't know exactly 
what was going on. And we don't even know how solid the relationship was when they set off together. I mean, I, we describe it as eloping, but we don't even know whether she expected the relationship to last or not. I think it was all very uncertain. So it was basically this leap of faith doing something that she knew would be very scandalous. I mean, that's why she didn't tell people what she was doing, even her closest friends. Um, she knew it was going to get her into trouble. I don't think she knew exactly what the future held, but she took a risk on this man and on this relationship. And yeah, they set off for Germany together. And then when they were there in Germany, they were mixing in a society that was much more liberal, much more open-minded than Victorian society, you know, back in England. And so they were able to just be a public couple and go out for dinner together and go to parties. And they were mixing with all these interesting people and they were accepted. It was only when they then returned to England a few months later that the consequences of this decision really hit home and most of her friends cut her off. They wouldn't invite her to dinner. They wouldn't go and visit her. She was basically ostracised from society. Lewis was able to carry on socialising because there was such a double standard about men and women who made these choices. What did sex have to do with it? <laughs> well, again, we don't know. As with most other couples, we don't know, don't know anything really about their sex life. I mean, I think they... They certainly had a sex life, but that's about as much as we know about it. In all of this, there's a kind of orthodoxy built on her respect for marriage, the idea, but there's also a fluidity in a very sort of modern way. It's not the Victorian prudishness at all. No, no. And that's what's so interesting about her. And I think it's also interesting to read her novels with that in mind, because I certainly always was under the impression that George Eliot was this very moralistic, you know, typically Victorian writer. And even though we don't know about her sexual relationship herself, we can certainly see her in the novels um, exploring sexual experience and the dynamics between couples in quite subtle ways, obviously, because it was you know the Victorian period and these things weren't written about explicitly. But it's definitely there if you're attentive to it when you, when you read the novels. I get this sense throughout your book that George Eliot was sort of love bug all her life. She has an intimate friend in her 20s in Sarah Hennel, who is also deep into literature and philosophy. A substitute love affair, you call it. George Eliot addressed her letters to Sarah Hennel as dearly beloved spouse mm. and signed them your loving wife. Do we need a translation for that? Yeah, she had this very passionate, very intimate friendship, actually mostly by letter with this with this friend of hers, Sarah Hennel, who, as you say, shared her intellectual interests. And this was, you know, both women were single. This was through her 20s and Sarah was a few years older. So it was that intense longing for connection, for companionship, for someone who she could share her inner life with, share her soul share her thoughts, pursue her ambitions. And Sarah was someone who I think allowed her to do that. So I, I see that relationship almost as a, a kind of prototype for the romantic relationship that she did then go on to pursue with Herbert Spencer and then actually to have with Lewis. But it's interesting that it's a relationship with another another woman. And as I said, you know, she did attract women often. Quite a few women fell in love with her over the course of her life. Yeah, it's funny, she's such a master of language, was very all over the place. She also referred to her novels as children. And then furthermore, on, on finishing The Mill on the Floss, she wrote the phrase that's attributed in the Gospels to Mary, the mother of Jesus, anticipating her miraculous baby. George Eliot wrote, my spirit rejoices in God. 
Do you mean when she writes Magnificat and the Mameas? Exactly. Yes, yes, and Mary's a really important figure for George Eliot, um, particularly after she went travelling in Italy and she saw all this Catholic art. Um, she saw many paintings of, of Mary and was, I think, very inspired by them. And this is part of her sort of thinking about motherhood, both in terms of becoming a stepmother to Lewis's sons, but also, as you say, the kind of creativity, thinking of herself as, you know, giving birth to these works of art, to these novels and creating these characters. Um, so, yeah, she often used motherhood as both a, a sort of metaphor for her creativity, but also, you know, the sort of mm. actual experience of being a mother to Lewis's sons. And so I, yeah. We can't make a manual of marriage from George Eliot, but I, I wonder how we do let her coach us. I mean it seriously, to think outside rules, outside the context of rules, about real life, about better ways of romantic and social life, conventional or not. And as people do nowadays, uh, to think about the spectrum of identities we bring to every relationship. I think because she's working in the medium of fiction and she creates so many different characters and shows us inside a lot of different relationships, different marriages, you know, there clearly isn't one template for a successful marriage. But I think in exploring these multiple experiences and relationship dynamics, and because she, she writes in a way that's so moving, you know, she really engages our emotions as well as our intellects. I think her novels do both. They work on both a sort of thought level and a feeling level really well. And I think she sort of connects us with ourselves and with our own questions about our relationships, our lives. And so I think she encourages a kind of self-understanding or self-awareness and a kind of growth. I mean, as you said before, growth and kind of moral growth, spiritual growth is what she really cares about. And that's what she thinks her art is going to help other people to do. Yeah. And today, <laughs> I keep wondering, what would George Eliot make of the ever-evolving sex and gender consciousness of the 21st century and our uneasiness in talking about it. She's so much more open to the conversation than a lot of parents feel they can be today. Again, when we look back on the Victorian era, we think of it as like very conventional <laughs> and we imagine that it would be just a kind of more strict version of our own quite sort of binary ways of thinking right. about sex and gender. So it's interesting to go back and seeing, you know, seeing her having these what seemed to be quite romantic, certainly very intimate friendships with another woman and using a male name and sort of playing with her identity. Other people described her as masculine looking. They said, often said that she looked like a man, but also that she was very feminine in the way she spoke and the way she moved and so on. So, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to think about how people inhabit these identities and they're often more, more fluid or less binary than we imagine. The cliché is that the Victorians were prudish and inhibited, but I begin to think we're much more so, certainly more than George Eliot was, and that she can instruct us on opening up these subjects. I take her moral to be, start with love. Get the love mm. piece right, mm. and you'll find the institutional structure for you, and your work has well begun. I think it's still important to remember that she herself really suffered from those rigid institutional structures. So, you know, as I say, she was excluded from society. And even though her success as a writer did sort of rehabilitate her and made, you know, people did start to visit her in, in her later years and she had a kind of salon 
at their house, which Lewis orchestrated, there was still like a part of her where she wasn't fully accepted into the establishment. And this really became very apparent at the end of her life. You know, after she died, she'd wished to be buried in Westminster Abbey in Poets' Corner, um, where the yes. great English writers are buried and, and remembered. And and the Church of England said no because of her her attitude to marriage. So it's interesting how that very daring choice that she made in her 30s, you could say that without that choice, she would never even have become George Eliot. She wouldn't have written the novels. And yet the choice still, it still hindered her in terms of the way society was willing to accept her and the way, the way they viewed her. And it was only 100 years, it's 100 years after her death, that a stone was finally laid for her in um, Westminster Abbey to commemorate her. So I think that's a really interesting part of her life story too, that, you know, she did really suffer from those moral judgments that were made of her. And that's an interesting question for a biographer, because I think when you're writing a biography of somebody, you're perhaps expected to make moral judgments about them, to sort of say what you approve of or what you disapprove of, say how whether they were a good person or not, and so on. And so I find those questions about moral judgment and how far we can judge others. I mean, those are philosophical questions too, and, and I think they really come up in biography, and I thought quite a lot about them when I was um, trying to kind of sum up her life at the end of the book. Is the stone in Westminster Abbey marked for Marion Evans or George Eliot? It's marked George Eliot. And I think also Marianne, Marianne Evans. Yeah, it's got both her names on it. Ah. But not the name of Marianne Lewis, which is the name that she wanted people to call her during her partnership with Lewis. So that name, which she, she did adopt and, you know, asked people to call her by that name, that name has been effaced from history because they weren't legally married. The strange wrinkle in her last year is that she did finally get married to a rich she man did. <laughs> who was an enormous fan of her work, John Cross. And the fascinating piece in your book is the tiff you got into with your editor about how <laughs> to read that. Reenact your argument with your outraged editor that you were positioning her as uh, maneuvering almost mm. corruptly for the advantage of a marriage at the end. Yeah, so Lewis died in 1878 and... Elliot was plunged into this mourning. Um, but a few months later, she decided to get married to this family friend called John Cross, who was 20 years younger than she was. And um, I speculate in the book about her reasons for deciding to, to marry John Cross. It's partly because she was lonely and she needed companionship and he was you know, a nice person and they got on well together. But also, I suggest... It's because she, as I said, she wanted to get married in Westminster Abbey and she was very concerned by this point about her reputation, her posthumous legacy, you know, how she would be remembered and how she would become immortalised as a great writer. So this was after she'd written Middlemarch and Daniel Durando and she was sort of coming to the end of her career, really thinking about her, her legacy. And I speculate that she hoped that this respectable legal marriage would bring her this yeah this sort of final seal of approval mm. in the eyes of the church and other establishment figures 
as mentioned, this actually didn't work out, but I suggest that this might have been on her mind when she made that decision. And then um, my editor, when he read the manuscript of the book, he kind of underlined this part. He's like, hmm, I don't like this. And he, he thought I was attributing a kind of calculating mercenary motive to Elliot. And he wanted to have a more romantic view that it was just all about love. And so I said, you know, no, I, I don't think it works like that. I think people very often get married for many different reasons, usually a mixture of reasons. So yes, it's about love, but it might also be about what that person brings to your life, you know, what kind of world they can introduce you to or what their status is or what their sort of family is or how much money they have. Like the, you know, these different elements are often circling around people's choice of partner. And of course, if somebody gets married, like purely just for one of those motives, then we might sort of not look very kindly on that. But the fact that there could be a mixture of motives is, I think, very, um, very kind of understandable. And probably, you know, she was attracted to Lewis in the first place because she saw that he was someone who was going to help her fulfil her ambitions. So even that relationship, even though we might think of it as very romantic, and in a way it was romantic, I mean, they did genuinely love each other. But it was also, as you say, about work and about art, as well as about love. So perhaps the relationship with John Cross, you know, is similar. It was also to cement her reputation as an artist and to, um, yeah, kind of secure George Eliot's immortality in a way. Claire Carlyle, come back to this puzzle of what is philosophy and what does philosophy have to do with it? What was she discovering or preaching almost philosophically. You write toward the end of your book, this is what is so exciting about George Eliot's philosophy. She searched for truths, not in order to form crisp definitions or moral judgments, but to make space for the soul to grow, to stay curious, to feel alive. <laughs> Wonderful language, but it's touched by religious aspiration as much as philosophical ideas, is it not? Or where's the philosophy mm. in the end? Well, I wouldn't make such a sharp distinction between religion and philosophy. And, and I don't um, mean to. I mean, I think you know, so, some people certainly would, but I think in, in my case and also in George Eliot's case that, yeah, she would probably want to resist that distinction. So I think the growth of the soul is perhaps a really good definition of philosophy for George Eliot. I mean, she, and I think for me too, I mean, I think this idea that our souls or ourselves, you know, you don't have to use the language of a soul if that sounds too religious or something, but just to say, you know, that the inner part of ourselves, our hearts or our souls, are longing for goodness, we're aspiring to truth, we want to live meaningful lives. And that is a path and a process of growth, reaching out, perhaps trying to fulfil our potential, uh, whether that's a creative potential or an intellectual potential or just the potential to be a parent or whatever. And ultimately, that's what philosophy is about. It's not necessarily easy to um, to find the right path and to find the good, to understand ourselves really well. Um, that can be difficult and it needs it needs attention and time and so on. And philosophy is really a sort of devotion to living a good life and, yeah, pursuing wisdom and so on. So so I think I have quite a kind of expansive view of philosophy. And I like George Eliot because she does too. I mean, she, you know, she read so much philosophy, not just Spinoza, who she translated, but also, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Hegel and Kant and 
you know, she was just incredibly immersed in the philosophical tradition, as am I. But ultimately, that erudition, that learning, I think, is only really meaningful if it's oriented to, I guess, what you'd call existential questions or spiritual questions to do with living, living well, living a good life. We've spoken about Dorothea Brooke and Kasabin. What are the other demonstrations of a bad marriage in her novels? To me, the worst one is Gwendolyn Harleth, who wants to be married to Daniel Deronda, but she marries a complete monster uh, and <laughs> suffers terribly from it. Yeah, so Daniel Deronda is George Eliot's last novel, and it is the most terrible marriage that she she dramatises in that book between Gwendolyn and Grandcourt, who is this very cruel, sadistic, abusive husband, really. And we see Gwendolyn, uh, we see her, her soul really suffer in that marriage. But actually, one of George Eliot's very first stories is about domestic violence. It's about a woman whose husband gets drunk and hits her and she's become an alcoholic. So, you know, very early in her career, she turned to these very dark marriage plots. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about her compared to other writers of her day who perhaps offered as a more sort of romantic or more lighthearted or more idealised view of marriage is perhaps her unhappy marriages that are the most interesting and the ones that we have most to learn from as readers of her fiction because she shows how interdependent we are. So if one soul is connected to another soul, then it can either be helped to grow and flourish or it can be ruined can be kind of smothered and and not allowed to express itself, not allowed to be healthy and to grow. I mean, we see that in Middlemarch too with uh, Dr. Lydgate's marriage marriage to Rosamond. And, you know, she actually says very explicitly that this is a marriage that sort of stunts his, his growth and he actually, you know, dies young and just wastes his potential. So one of the things that she's really interested in, I think, is um, what happens when we make a bad choice and she's really showing how we can sort of waste our lives, you know, devoting them to the wrong people. I mean, Dorothea is in danger of wasting her life in marrying Kazorbon, just as he is already wasting his life in kind of writing this book that's got no hope of, you know, doing what it's trying to do. So the prospect of a wasted life is one that really haunts George Eliot's work and the kind of everyday disappointment that can come. So she's really a writer that explores a whole spectrum of human experience from from very, very sort of joyful and profound and kind of spiritually uplifting to extremely dark and devastating and um, just sort of desolate, really. You know, we see very desolate experiences of marriage in particular dramatised in some of her stories. Everybody, including herself, said she had a very melancholy side and maybe depressive. Mm. She did, absolutely, yeah. No, she was prone to depression and um, she often got really depressed about her work. You know, she's, she'd write one novel and feel really happy about it and then just think, oh, I can't, I can never do it again. You know, so she was constantly doubting herself. And again, I think this is one of the great contributions that Lewis made. You know, not only did he help her in many practical ways by acting as her agent and her publicist and negotiating all her book deals for her. But he was very cheerful. He was constantly encouraging her 
cheering her up, telling her she was great, you know, telling her she could do this work. And so that's that's a sort of nice aspect of their relationship in that in one way they're they're quite opposite characters, even though they both, you know, share this great love of ideas and philosophy and, and, and so on. Temperamentally they're really different and I think very, very sort of complementary to each other. Claire Carlisle, it's a wonderful reintroduction to George Eliot and a wonderful introduction to you and your own thinking. Funny, a week ago we were talking with Zadie Smith about her new novel, and the more I read about George Eliot, I feel Zadie is a kind of successor. This enormous curiosity about life in her own place in it, I think it should be required reading, not just reading for pleasure and enlightenment. It should be required in the schools, Florida and otherwise. Claire Carlisle, thank you. And thank you, George Eliot, too. Thanks so much for the conversation. Claire Carlisle's new book is The Marriage Question, George Eliot's Double Life. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of smart, independent podcasts. This week, consider Mementos from producer Laurie Mortimer. It's about the objects we preserve and what they say about us. You could start with an episode titled Ruth's Poetry, in which a woman rediscovers her grandmother in a folder of poems nobody knew she had written. You can find the show at mementospodcast.com and browse the whole Hub and Spoke spectrum at hubspokeaudio.org. 